the story has been told of a, a woman who was a kind of simple, uh, poor woman that was attending a more uh, exclusive church. You might be familiar with an exclusive church. And she had filed an application for membership, and uh, the application came back as uh, rejected. So a few months later, she reapplied, and it once again came back as rejected. She did this a third and a fourth time, and finally she made uh, an appointment to meet with the chairman of the membership uh, committee. We don't have one of those, by the way. And asked the chairman, uh, what is going on? I've applied like four times, and... I haven't, uh, I keep getting rejected. And so, you know, the chairman of the membership committee said to this rather simple and poor uh, woman, maybe you should go pray uh, and ask the Lord if this is the church that he wants you to be a part of. And so she went and she did that. And uh, a couple of years passed and the chairman of the membership committee bumped into this uh, nice lady who's a little simple and a little poor. And uh, she was scrubbing floors at the hotel that she worked at, and he said, hey, I haven't seen you uh, around church in a while. She said, yeah. So in fact, I don't think I've seen you since uh, you met with us about the membership application. And she said, yeah, that's true. And he said, well, didn't I ask you to go and to pray and to uh, see if God was going to, uh, wanted you to be a member here? And she said, yes. And uh, at which point he said, well, what, you know, what happened from that? Uh, and she said, well, I actually did, and I heard from Jesus, and he said, don't feel bad. I've been trying to join this church for 20 years, and I haven't had any luck either, so I just gave up. <laughs> See if that works. The, uh, ju the judgmental crowd, we've maybe, if you've not been a Christian for very long, you might not have experienced this, but if you've been for any length of time, you might have been on the end of somebody who looks down their nose at you, uh, wants the church to be this sort of exclusive place with these rules and regulations and policies and procedures. And, and, and we, you know, there are the caricatures of this. You know, Margie Phelps is one of my biggest fans. You know, she's from Westboro Baptist Church. You might be familiar with the folks that picket funerals. And uh, I was actually really sad when they came to picket in Nashville that they didn't come here. I like, Margie, I thought we had something. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> So uh, I was trying to find the one where she called me the lying whore false prophet, but I couldn't. But I got demoted from lying whore uh, false prophet to brute, and then I, uh, devouring. devouring brute, yeah. And then uh, this one, which is that you make merchandise of men's soul, read Revelations 8 to see the special doom that God has in store for you, vicious false prophet. So I'm not 100% sure I, uh, what she meant, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I thought that I was a bishop, but apparently I'm a prophet, so... I just have never been very popular in that crowd, and maybe you haven't either. And of course, again, this is like a caricature of what we see in life. But we, we put aside the, the, the goofiness and the guy with the sandwich board sign and a bullhorn and a, and a YouTube video. And, and you might have experienced it in other ways at, ch at churches or brothers and sisters in Christ that it didn't go as well as you had thought it could have gone, uh, that they had in some things that you were doing that maybe they didn't really think were good. And so, you know, look, again, looking down their nose at you. And, you know, uh, I've been a Christian for a very, very long time. And I, I remember, you know, moments of those in my life when that was people kind of looking down at, at me. And, and then ultimately what happens is they, you know, they're judging us. And that word judging is 
the word that is used actually in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats. It's judgment means to cut off, to separate, to put apart from it. And that's exactly what you've, you've experienced if you've been around the church for any length of time is that if, if you're, there are certain things that you, you're uh, doing, and, and incidentally, I'm not talking about things that are the obvious things, like, like lying. Like, I can't say to you, well, I really don't have a conviction about lying, so I'm not going to go with that one. Uh, th- these are, that's not what I'm referring to here. What I'm referring to are the questionable things, the things that are, well, one person does it this way, another person does it that way. But if you've been around, again, long enough, like in the 80s and 90s, you've heard me joke about it. It was all about the hair length. It was all about whether or not you had earrings. Uh, incidentally, if you get your ear pierced at the Bible college, uh, the Band-Aid, uh, you need to get the flesh see-through one because they'll see it otherwise. So I'm just saying. And the Scooby-Doo one really stands out. Um, but I remember, you know, being pulled aside, and I think I've joked about this before, but the length of your hair was too long, and there's a picture of Jesus behind the guy with hair. And with no sense of irony, the guy's barking at me about my hair being below my collar, and Jesus had long hair in the picture right behind him. I'm thinking, but wait, I thought, you know. But it was these disputable, silly things, and I, you know which ones you've experienced. But the thing is, is it's nothing new. This has been around for centuries, for millennia. That, that's what Paul actually in Romans 14 is actually dealing with, is in their day, in their age, one of the controversies was uh, meat that had been offered to idols. If you were a pagan worshiper and you had butchered, uh, sacrificed this perfectly good cow or sheep or goat, you know, when you're done with it, you know, why not go and sell it? And so they had these places called shambles and you could sell uh, you could purchase meat. It was, I guess, like a buy, buy less kind of thing where you could get it at a discount because it had been sacrificed to a pagan god. And so the controversy was, hey, don't, well, we can't eat that meat because since it was offered to a pagan god, that makes it impure. And so there was this controversy going on in Rome, and it's actually mentioned again in the letter uh, to the Corinthians about this meat. And so Paul is dealing specifically with that. And in our world, we have those kinds of issues. This church does it this way. This church says that way. And they're these disputable things. And what do we do about those? And I can't, st- I mean, I just can't say or stand or uh, suggest that we have any authority with any other church. But when I look at Romans 14 and I see this, what Paul lays out here, what I would love for us a conduit to be is to follow the playbook that Paul lays out for us. To say that when we hit a controversial topic, when we hit something that you know, there's, there's a little wiggle room here or there, like a perfectly reasonable, per, reasonable person could look at this issue and have one opinion, another one could have another opinion about it. What do we do about that? We know what we've experienced in the past, which is what we need to separate into herds. You know, we're the, we're the church that does it this way, and they're the church that does it that way. And, and I don't think that that's what God had in mind. When he gives us the playbook here, I mean, Romans 14, he starts out in verse 1 with receive the one who is weak in faith. And when I look at that word alone, it's like, okay, receive. I feel like he's trying to tell us something here of what do we do? Receive this person, not lord over them. I love what Paul says in 
Second uh, Corinthians one. You don't have to turn there. Verse twenty four. When he came to them, he said, "We not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand." A brother and sister in Christ who is seeking God's will and a pastor, a spiritual leader, is not seeking to lord over you, to have dominion over you, but to walk alongside you and to undergird your joy and your faith. But here's what I look at. When I see what he says here in receive, the one who is weak, interesting, who is it that he says is weak? He says, receive the one who is weak, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but listen to this, but he who is weak eats only the vegetables. He's saying that the person who is spiritually weak, ironically enough, is the one who is the judgmental one. The one saying, oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that, because that's just the way we've always done it. And so when I read Romans 14, he's actually, he's addressing both the judger and the judgee, but predominantly the judgee. How can we as judgees, what do we respond? When I've been in that, and if everybody in this room has been around the church for any length of time, you've got somebody in your mind right now that that's that person in your life that cut you off, that rejected you, that judged you. And he says that we're to receive them. And I got to tell you, receiving them wasn't exactly what I was looking for him to tell me to do. What I wanted to do was uh, give him the right foot of fellowship. <laughs> the right stare of fellowship. That, But he says to receive that person. And again, if you're thinking like me, you're thinking, yeah, but this guy's kind of a tool. Like every time I'm around them, this thing breaks out and I just feel like it's not healthy for me to be there. And Paul knows that, which is why he says, receive that person, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So we receive the person, but we reject the pettiness. Do you see where this is going? He's saying you receive them, but put some boundaries in place, some healthy boundaries. Receive them, love them, but if they're going to want to fight and want to argue and want to debate, and don't. Just don't go there. Reject the pettiness over the disputed and the doubtful things. Like when I'm antagonizing these guys, that's not very helpful to the kingdom. It's funny, but it's not helpful, and it's what Paul is saying. Do the exact opposite of what Darren did, because I was receiving them unto the disputes about doubtful things, because it was funny, just not helpful. The people in our lives that have put us through these things that we've experienced, we should receive them, but we should reject the pettiness. It's okay to have some boundaries in place. I used to think that with these people that, like, whether it was with the hair or different things that I thought were okay that they, they didn't, if I just could explain it to them better, they, they just didn't understand what I was saying. And if I could explain it to them better, then they'll get it, and then we could be bros again. But what I learned in my life is, no, they actually understood me the first time. They just didn't agree. So I had to receive them, reject the pettiness, and I had to relinquish what I really wanted in that situation, which is the power. 
Because what I wanted was the power to change them. And what he says in verse 4 is, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for it's God who will make them to stand. When I am relinquishing the power, what I am saying is, I am not Holy Ghost Jr. It is not my job to change the hearts of man. Which is awesome, because I apparently am very bad at it. But when I realize what is on my business card for the kingdom, so to speak, is not Holy Ghost Jr., there's just an enormous amount of freedom in that, that I can't change them. It's only the power of God, the gospel, that can change them from the inside out. And whether you're on the judger or the judgee side of this, man, that's extremely helpful. We get confused because we see the go and make disciples of all men in Matthew 28. I think it's probably one of the more unfortunate translations. In fact, later translations, including King James, actually say go and teach all. Because the idea is that I can make a disciple. And where I get sideways with that is that I really want you to think like I think and to agree with what I want and to see it the way that I see it. And I'm trying to make you not in God's image, but in my image. It's what Lucifer did in the garden. Eve was made in God's image. In God's image, it says that he created them. Lucifer, approaching Eve, wanted her to agree with him and to be in his image. And from there on out, it was about the legalism, the adding to, the extra rules and the regulations. If you remember, you've been around, you've heard me say this, but it's worth repeating, that when when uh, Lucifer approached Eve at that moment and said, you know, the apple, and she said back to Lucifer, oh, but God said we can't eat from that tree. We can't even touch it. But that isn't what he said. He just said, don't eat it. She added, don't touch it, and legalism was born. Sure, if you don't eat it, if you don't touch it, you can't eat it. That's, that's fine. That's nice. It's a, it's a true thing. It's just not what he said. It's Eve adding to God's word and Almost any instance of legalism that you experience around is when we add to God's word and then make it a rule and a regulation and a policy or a procedure that had nothing to do with the scriptures to begin with, that's when we fall into legalism. There's nothing wrong with a system, but a system ought to be there to serve us. If we begin to serve the system, we've got it completely backwards. When I relinquish the power that I want, which is to control them, it's an act of faith to say that I'm not going to make you anymore. I'm not trying to make you in my image. Discipleship is not you making someone into your image. It's allowing God to transform them into the image of his son. And how do we do that, man? We teach, we example, we model. You know, Russ sent me an email yesterday saying that part of being a disciple, it says, uh, I think in Luke, when you pick up your cross and follow me, these are my disciples. I'm modeling what it means to be a disciple. I'm teaching what it's to be a disciple. But I have no control beyond that at all. And anything that I try to do with my rules and my regulations and my policies and my procedures is me trying to control and power to change them and doing something that only God can do in their hearts. What he says here in verse 4 or 5-ish is that everybody should be convinced in their own heart. I can't convince you in your heart. You can't convince me in my heart. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I used to think, you know, Acts 17, where it talks about the Bereans, and it says that they were more noble because they approached the scriptures and they wanted to make sure that what Paul was saying was in the scripture. I used to think that that was the hard part, which was going to the scriptures and making sure. I'm 41-ish now, and what I'm realizing, is that's actually the easy part. The hard part is the last part of that verse, which is with readiness of mind. They approach the scriptures. What I find is that my mind is not ready. My mind is already made up before I go there, and I'm trying to get the Bible to fit my narrative as opposed to the other way around. When we approach the scripture with the readiness of mind, I can then relinquish the power that I wanted because that's what they've got to do. It's them and their faith. It's me and my faith. When I stand before the Lord, it is me and them, and which is why I feel like the next thing Paul is telling us to do is that we have to, number four, release And what I'm releasing is punishment. In verse 10, because you know it, if you've been judged, if you've been hurt, what you want to do is lash out against them. But he says here in verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall stand, we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue confess to God, so that each of us individually shall give account of himself to God. And because of this, don't judge each other anymore. When I stand before the Lord, none of you guys are going to be there, and vice versa. So when I am releasing my desire for revenge and for punishment, it's an act of faith, saying to them, to the Lord, it's, it's yours. I'm going to stand there. You're going to stand there. And if you don't mind, I want to take a quick left turn because when we get to judgment, it, it can get a little confusing. But just hang with me. This is, I'm not going to charge any extra for this today at all. Okay, don't be afraid. But when I think of judgment, just really quickly write this down, chew on it, go home, pray about it. But there are three judgments that Scripture speaks of, okay? Quickly. The past judgment. This might help you to think about into the future when you're thinking about judgment. Think about it this way. There's a past judgment. John 12, 31. That's when Jesus says to his disciples that this is the judgment of this world. Talking about the Son of Man. He's on his way to the cross. That the Son of Man would be handed over, crucified. That judgment is for your sin. It's for my sin. It's It's for the sin of the person that has hurt you. I'll never have to answer for that sin because it's forgiven. It is covered. Every sin I have committed, every sin I'm committing today, I'll commit tomorrow. It is covered in the perfect blood of Jesus, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. It's perfect. The wrath of God that my sin deserves was taken care of on that day. If you've grown up in the Midwest, you might know that when a fire is coming, a grass fire, especially when the Sooners, the Oklahoma, the land grab, that those fires would go so quickly that they had no time to leave. And what they learned was the best thing to do if they saw smoke in the horizon was to set a fire in the fields immediately around where they were. Let it burn a big old black hole. And the safest place to be when the fire would come is in the place that was already burned because there was no fuel there left. The safest place for us to be is safe in the hands of 
God at the foot of the cross where the wrath, the fire of God was poured out already. And I stand there unburned, untouched because of what he did for me. That past judgment is perfect. It's pure. It's forever for those that would call upon the name of the Lord, that believe the past. There's a present judgment. You're saying, Darren, what is that? I get to judge. This is great news. Awesome. You get to judge yourself. In 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to say 27, but you guys feel free to look and make sure how close I am on that. When he says that when you go to the Lord's table, the table of communion, that a man ought to examine his heart and his life to say, okay, this is sin in my life. Lord, show me where I can do this, what's better, where I can repent, and to examine myself. I don't get to judge other people. I get to judge me and to examine my own heart. And no better place than at the table when I'm looking at these elements that represent what Christ did for me. To examine your heart. And then there is a future judgment. 1 Corinthians 3-ish speaks of what has been affectionately known as the Bema Seat Judgment. This is not a uh, Petra song, even though it was. Come on, somebody knows that. Three of you. Wow. We'll break out a guitar if you're not careful. The Bema Seat Judgment is where I get to stand before the Lord, you get to stand before the Lord, not for punishment, but for reward. But here's the, here's the deal. Those sins that I have committed, the, the dead works, all that stuff, it's called wood, hay, and stubble, and it speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 3-ish. If I'm wrong, somebody feel free to shout me out on that one because I think that's where it's at. It speaks of that you will, your works will be judged on that, and the wood, the hay, the stubble, it's all gone. And it says that you'll be saved, but, but by fire, And what is left is the gold, the purity. It's burning off the crap and letting the gold shine through. That is the Bema seat judgment. It's why it is important that we, how we act here. It's why it's not faith versus works. It's faith that works. Because what we're doing here, when you're setting up these classrooms, when you are going to New Jersey, when you're going overseas, when you're loving your neighbors, those are gold and they will stay. And it talks about that your reward will come from that in that future judgment, the Bema seat judgment. So when I'm talking about judgment, those are the three judgments, the past, the present, the future. You you get it? And when I am releasing my punishment I'm saying to God that it's between me and you at this point. I can't do what you can do perfectly. I feel sorry for my son, Ethan. He's seven and he has three sisters, which means he has four moms. That kid, I mean, try to sneak a cookie in my house. They're all over him. And one of the things, and it's kind of cute, but one of the most frustrating things as a father is when I see my child trying to do my job. Because it's saying to me, especially when they're doing it right in front of me, you, you obviously don't got this, Dad, so I got, it. I got it for you. I got this one handled. I'll punish him. I'll. It, it, it makes me angry. And I, it, no amount of me saying, hey, look, guys, you're free, Lauren. You don't have to worry about Ethan. There's going to come a point where you will have your own kids, and you're going to be plenty busy. Just let yourself go. Let him get the cookie, not because he's supposed to, but it's just not your responsibility. You're getting all stressed out because of him, and it's 
not your job, when I'm judging my brother and sister in Christ, including those who are judging me, I am doing God's job for him. And you know what? It just ain't helpful. He is smarter than I am. He knows more than I know. And my act of faith, my act of worship is to say, I give that to you, God. You got that one. I trust you to do that for me. I'm releasing the idea of punishment. And then in verse 13, he tells us that we should resolve, which I'm about to spell wrong, for piety. Because if I am looking at my brothers and sisters now who are judgmental, who don't think that I should consume an alcoholic beverage, who don't think that I should smoke a cigar, who don't think things that you can look to the scripture and a reasonable person could make an argument either way. He says, you know what? You're just not that thirsty. You don't have to go there to cause someone to stumble. Now here's the kicker on it. Where does it stop? Because I've got a zipper on my pants today and there are Amish and Mennonite brothers and sisters that would stumble at that and say, you can't be a Christian. Here's where I believe it is and why Paul leaves it so open because the Holy Spirit has to get involved. In Acts 15, there's this council that they're getting together whether or not circumcision should be right or wrong, whether you have to be circumcised to get into the kingdom. They had a meeting about this, the committee. It's like the first time that the denominational committees came together and we're gonna figure this out. And they came out and said, no, no, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with works and with law. Circumcision is not required to get into the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul goes with Timothy. They're heading into a predominantly Jewish area. And it says, and I quote, and then Paul circumcised Timothy. Imagine that discipleship class. Discipleship 105, we'll have scalpels available in the back. Because now all of a sudden we got this rule. Now Paul did that. Should we do that for everybody? No, because Titus, it speaks of in Galatians, he didn't circumcise Titus. And he told Titus, don't do that. Because all you're going to do is encourage them that it is the law that will get them to heaven. Is he contradicting himself? No. He's following the Spirit. Where Paul was going with Timothy was a Jewish community. They were not Christians. They were Jewish believers, and it was a cultural thing. And so by prayer, he's saying, okay, this is what we got to do. Timothy, you got to take one for the team. Now, if I'm Timothy, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to go check out that church down the street. i got a mailer for that. I don't know if I'm going to do that. But with Titus, these are Christians who are with a Jewish background, and he's saying, no, don't do it for them because that's going to teach them by your example that it is about works for that. You have to leave room for the Holy Spirit one way or the other. Don't antagonize them on purpose, but resolve for the piety, for the humility that says, I'm not going to stick that dragon in the butt just to get a reaction. Just to get, just poke them, just to, just to see if they'll breathe fire on me, because that's kind of fun. Don't do that. Resolve for piety. Resolve for humility. And then reinforce peace. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. There are things in the church. I had a conversation this week with a, with a great guy. Love him. Hadn't been in a while. And he's like, yeah, we were going over to this other church because it's more liturgical. 
you know, the robes and the incense and the smells and bells thing. And now what I wanted to do was make fun of that. Because I feel like, well, that's just kind of adding stuff. And incense, I mean, you can go to any recording studio in town and smell that. Get some glade, springtime. I don't, you know, I don't know, but that's what he was into. So what I, my, my choice, thank God, was to not poke at him, but to go for things that brought peace. And you know what brings peace? Jesus. Prince of peace. To go there. To resolve for peace, not to intentionally stick somebody, not intentionally to start something, to stir it up, but to resolve for things that we all can agree on. Augustine said it, I think he said it best, when he said when it's talking about things that are disputable, when he said when we're talking about things that are essential, which is Jesus Christ, him crucified, rose again from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures foretold, on that we should have unity and conformity. On the gray areas, those areas where someone could do it this way, someone might light candles, someone might not, someone might like fog in your Sunday morning service, some might not. He said on those things that are a little gray, Augustine said for those we would have liberty. But in all things we have and should strive for charity, for love. Things that are essential, unity. Things that are not essential, liberty. Things that are all of the above, charity. I, I want to address something for those of you that have been on the receiving end of the judging. And I read something like this, and I think, you know what, I've been the judger and the judgee sometimes on the same day. It's probably why Paul molds them together so seamlessly. But if you've been on the receiving end of it, you know that it hurts. It makes you mad. Anger is a secondary emotion. It really is. It just hurts. In our desire to conform and to do what's right, we make these rules and regulations, and then when you run afoul of it, then all of a sudden you're out on the streets. And... But I found some peace this week as I really dug into this, and it's a word specifically for the judges this week. Those that have been cut off. Those of you that might have, hey, left the church and you, you did what you knew to do was right and, and you see the guy at the grocery store and he looks the other way like you don't even exist. I saw this happen. I swear I saw this in front of my own eyes about uh, three weeks ago sitting with some friends, some brothers and sisters from this fellowship. And one of the guys sitting at the table, someone walked in and this was not a big restaurant. And he, raises, he sees him come in and he raises up his like one of these kind of waves. And we're in the middle of discussion, so I, nobody really said anything. And the guy, he, so uh, the guy sit with me, gives him one of these. And then the guy, he looks over at him and gives him one of these. The other way. And I, later that day, we were talking, and he said, we were like, what was that all about? I, I thought he just, he didn't wreck, I thought, you know how you've done that at the mall where you see somebody you think you know, and that awkward moment when, <laughs> that's not who I thought you were. He's like, no, that was the pastor, a pastor on staff from my old church. He was there for years. And he looked at him like he was from Neptune. That hurts. It hurt me. It hurt me to watch it. But I feel a sense of pity and sorrow for that 
pastor. Because it comes from an honest place inside of a pastor. I know this because I've been on the receiving end of it. This idea that when someone leaves your church, it's like losing an arm. This is the metaphor that some pastors would use. It's like losing my son. That's not the relationship that God asks us to have with you. I love every one of you guys, every one of you. And if the Lord leads you to another body of believers, another fellowship, you have my blessing. You don't even need it, but you have it. Because I don't own you. Sheep are not, you're not property. We're humans. We stand on level ground before the cross, all in the burnt circle of that. And I want you to know that if that happens and you go, and I see you at the mall, I'll probably hug you. And I'm not even a huggy kind of guy. And don't get me wrong. I'm saying this and it all of a sudden it feels like I'm trying to be noble on this guy. I'll find other ways to let you down. Don't get me wrong. But for this one, it's not about owning you. But here's the hope and the peace. As, as our worship guys come back, I want, you to, I want you to think about that person that has brought that hurt into your life or that judgment or that group of people or maybe you've been one of those where you had the, uh, the I shouldn't say this out loud but it's happened to me the surprise meeting with the pastor and the elders and you're like I thought we were going to lunch <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being gang rushed you've been rejected and you've been when he did this thing and he waved and that guy looked away let me tell you what that look is is saying you are dead to me and in verse 10 of Romans 14, it actually uses the phrase, who are you to set as not? That's King James for you are dead to me. You are zero. Here's the hope. Here is the beauty. In Luke chapter 23, when Jesus was standing before Herod, they've brought him back and said, hey, can you find any goodness in this deal? And what it says that Herod did was that when Jesus didn't say a word, because Jesus is following the playbook that he gave to Paul to begin with, we just don't debate them because there's nothing Jesus could have said to Herod that would have changed his mind. God is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. So he says he didn't say a word, but that Herod set him as not. In Acts 4, when it speaks of Jesus, talking about the stone that the builder rejected, it says that the stone that the builder set as not. You're zero. You're nothing to me. Jesus experienced being set as a nothing, set as a not. He's been to this rodeo. He knows he's not a God that doesn't understand your hurts and your sorrows. He knows it. He felt it. And I believe that he gives me, he gives you the remedy for it. He didn't say anything to them. He didn't try to defend himself to them. It will do you no good. Don't get on Facebook and write a dissertation. Don't try to get argumentative. In Psalm 109, David was speaking of his enemies and he said, they've lied against me. This is verses one through four. You can write it down, go there later. They've lied against me. They, I've been friends to them and they have set me as naught, is not the Hebrew, but that's what he's saying there. I'm dead to them, but here's what he said but in verse four. But I prayed for them. Jesus didn't say anything to Herod, anything to Pilate, but what he did on the cross was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He didn't talk to them to defend himself. He didn't talk to them to try to justify himself. He talked to the Father to bring forgiveness to them. 
That's what David was saying to my enemies. God, I can't do anything for them. I can't change their hearts. But I'm a man of prayer. And listen, if you go down the rest of the verses of 109, look what he prayed. It's awful. Kill them. Get them. Get them. That's in your heart. It's, I believe, okay to pray to God what's in your heart in those instances. It's almost like a stomach virus. Some of you guys have had that this week. It's coming out one way or the other. Pray it out. Pray it to the Father. Nothing in David's character says that that was what he would have done. Whether it was to Saul, whether it was to his own son who had betrayed him, he forgave them. He didn't try to attack them. When someone killed Saul, what did he do? And he did, someone killed his enemy, the guy that was trying to kill him, and David killed the guy that killed Saul. Because he wasn't, that wasn't in his heart to reap fire down on his accuser. But it was okay to get it out of his soul and to pray it to our Father. And our Father, I love in the picture in Revelations when it speaks of our prayers as an incense for the throne. I think that just means that Jesus is up there, he's sweetening up my stinky prayers. He's like, God, I know that's what Darren says and what he wants, but that's not what he wants. Here's what he really wants. Here's what's really good. That when in Romans 8, the Spirit prays for us, he's praying, hey, here's what, I know Darren just said that. He's just mad. He's getting it out of his system. Here's what really, what we really need to do. As we're worshiping this morning, the reason I wanted you to get that person in your mind or that church or that thing is it's a great opportunity for you to take it to the Father, to tell him what's on your heart, and then give him the faith, your faith that you got it under control, God. Receive the person, but reject the pettiness. Relinquish your power, release the punishment, Resolve for piety, for humility. And reinforce peace, things that bring peace. Take it to the Father. Take it to Him. His Son knows what it's like to be said as not, to be rejected, to be judged, to be cut off from His own family. It was His brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, And maybe you're like me, because I find myself more like Peter, quite honestly. If you remember in John, when Jesus told Peter, here's how you're going to die, here's, you're going to be carried off. And what does the first thing Peter do? Well, what about John? I'm not going to be standing next to John or next to Peter, next to Cortland. I'm going to be me. It's not about what about Cortland. This is what God has called me to do. Not what about the person that has hurt you, that has lashed out at you, they're gonna stand before God as well. And in verse four, it says, then God can make him or her stand and he will make them stand, not you. You're just gonna be exhausted trying to make something happen that wasn't your job to begin with. Father, I am uh, mindful that your words are always a lamp to my feet that in situations that I don't think, I don't have any idea what to do about, you got it under control. And today, my prayer, Lord, is that you will forgive me for being the judger, for returning judgment for judgment, for setting as naught 
those that have judged me and vice versa. And to know that ultimately I'm going to stand on the same level playing field of the cross before you someday. I pray for healing. And I pray for those people, that person in each of our lives that you would make yourself real to them. And bring healing to them as well. It's in the name of uh, Jesus. It's in the nature of who you are that I pray. Amen. As we're worshiping, pray about it. Get that person and her people, just, just give them to the Lord. Give it to the Lord and find the freedom that you're going to get. They're not, you know, you hold on to it. It's just going to make you miserable anyway. Just get rid of it. Give it to the Father and trust that he's got it under control.